Hello, and welcome to Virtual Philanthropy. I'm your host, EJ Jacobs. Virtual Philanthropy is a donor-led virtual tour of the grant-making process. Donors walk us through how they find potential organizations and ultimately decide how to fund them. Today's person in philanthropy is Sherwin DeWitt from the Siegel Family Foundation. Hi. Hi, welcome. So can you tell us a bit about yourself or the organization? For sure. Um, so I'm the Director of Partnerships at Siegel Family Foundation, where we have the great privilege to work with over 200 exceptional organizations in East and Central Africa. Um, they represent a variety of sectors and impact models, but really the center of gravity in our work is envisioning development that's steered by grassroots organizations and leaders uh, with lived experience of or close proximity to the problems that they seek to address. Um, so I've been really lucky to be at the Siegel Family Foundation since March of this year, and before that I worked in implementation in Eastern Central Africa. I know when we talk about grassroots, uh, there's always a bit of controversy about that because for some people grassroots means the organization is confined to a, a small area, a community, mm -hmm. maybe a little bit outside, maybe multiple communities. Mm -hmm. And other people, grassroots means led by the community. So the, the ED has to be from the area. Mm -hmm. Which one do you fall on in terms of single family? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a tension that comes up a lot. and. Um, when, when we think about grassroots, it's less about uh, putting confines around the type of model, but more about does the leader, does the person making strategic decisions for the organization have lived experience? And that could mean that they're from the community. It could mean that maybe they're not specifically from that community, but they have a lot of experience or they've had kind of a foundational um, a foundational moment that's allowed them to kind of relate and also be more accountable to that community. And, and so that could be a community-based organization that does have those geographic limitations. It could be a scalable model, um, but yeah, that's how we think about it. And you've mentioned the big word there, scale. Mm -hmm. I think when we talk about scale and grassroots, it's, it's, it can be nebulous, uh, quite honestly. Are we looking to scale the efforts that are being done in that community or scale the community's efforts outward? Do you have a definition for that in terms of what you're looking for? Not a strict definition. Uh, I think we really believe that it's up to an organization to decide what type of scale is most appropriate for their model. If it's reaching 100,000 people, if it means increasing depth of impact for the people that they already do work with. Before I uh, get you to do the virtual tour, here's your chance to do a shameless plug. You can plug anything you'd like. <laughs> Absolutely. So something that's really governed a lot of the choices we've made at the foundation, particularly in the last five years, has been really trying to internally and externally cultivate an awareness of disparities in philanthropy historically and, and currently. In 2017, for example, less than 1% of international funding in sub-Saharan Africa actually went to African-led organizations, and I think we can agree that that's pretty egregious. But in order to change things, we, we really want to make sure that we're addressing systemic issues, that we're addressing practical issues that are causing that, and to expand the toolkit that funders can use to really correct this to really walk the talk. We have collaborated with other funders to launch the African Visionary Fund, which is a donor advised fund to pool resources that can then be dispersed in unrestricted multi-year grants to African-led organizations. So we're really excited about that and always looking for more collaborative minds and insights to, to work towards that. Now, when you say something like 1% of funding going to Africa 
is actually reaching African organizations. Can you explain to listeners where the other 99% is going? Yeah, yeah, so that can be absorbed by expat-led organizations or foreign-led organizations, some of which are very impactful, are deeply embedded in communities, but are not led by Africans. That can be absorbed by, or, or distributed through bilaterals and other types of development agencies, through other funders, um, and, and Frankly, I think we all know that the development industry involves a lot of international professionals who may not necessarily, including myself and you, um, <laughs> who may not be from the communities that they're very passionate about working in. Um, and, and this isn't to say that we think of this as a, as a mutually exclusive question, right? It's not, does one form of development work better than another? I, I think everyone agrees that a collaborative approach is important, but it has to be a collaborative approach that has an equity lens and a historical context lens. Do you think there's a place in philanthropy for us where you talk about these organizations that are expat-led or sort of foreign-led to sort of have some sort of funding that goes to training up someone who could be a co-ED that's coming from the ground? Because I think what the fears are when I talk to EDs who are foreign-born or coming in as expats, they recognize that there's not someone, there's someone who's a great leader in terms of doing the work on the ground, but they don't have the same skill set in terms of talking to donors. So is there some place in philanthropy you feel like where it's not just a fellowship? Fellowships are great, but it really is about just having a clear grant to train somebody to, to have those conversations and not just be focus on leave, having them leave the country for a year or mm -hmm. just come to a couple of sessions they were there? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's a combination of things. Um, I think there's the, the individual elements of what skills would people need to really circumvent this, this disparity to deal with and bridge cultural challenges um, in terms of speaking to funders and, and like you said, donor speak that, that people are looking for. And, and I think there's certainly a lot of great approaches to do that, whether it's through connecting people with consultants or advisors to really help them firm up their fundraising strategy, um, or you know there are various fellowships that, that provide those kinds of opportunities, including the African Visionary Fellowship that's um, a part of Siegel Family Foundation's programming. Um, but I think it's also our responsibility to, to not only um, ask what can we do to to train certain people or upskill certain people, but to ask ourselves, um, how do we dismantle bias from the other side, and how do we train or upskill funders, right, to to bridge that divide and to say, you know, why are you not connecting with this type of leader? Um, what kind of blind spots might we have on the resourced side, um, and what responsibility can we take up to to better bridge that gap ourselves? I asked this question because um, I was speaking with somebody who's running a nonprofit uh, based in Africa, but from the West, and she had commented on being at a conference. And I, I want to be careful about what I say to so not get anyone in trouble. But she had been in a conference where uh, there were donors, and there was a donor who was speci specifically saying, "I want to support African-led leaders at African organizations." And when she saw this donor interact with those leaders, she felt like it was very patronizing. Mm. And that it was almost like, how can I help you? Oh, you're so brave for doing what you do. It's just amazing. And, and, and she felt the person that the donor was talking to also felt they were being patronized or in a position where they could say anything because there's funding on the table and funding interests being shown. So how do we get rid of that? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think I have been, been a part of those types of really uncomfortable interactions um, or witnessed that as well. And 
And I think it, it really requires us to be very honest with ourselves about how bias manifests. Um, and again, to, to ask people with certain types of power to take up responsibility to deal with that. Um, I think the condescension issue is, is one that happens all the time. And, and I think people carry, carry stereotypes with them. And, and, and I think actually, in terms of what I've witnessed, the most realistic way that this plays out isn't actually that anyone is actively trying to sideline African leaders of organizations. Rather, I think it manifests in places where, where do people give benefit of the doubt? And almost all of the time, we give benefit of the doubt to people who we share things in common with, whether it's our alma mater, place that we're from, the language that we speak. Um, and, and that's where I, I begin to, I, I want to put an asterisk on the question of quote unquote capacity building, right? Um, because it, it starts to become a little bit insulting um, when we imply that, that African leaders of organizations aren't accessing funding because they don't have the capacity or because they don't have the right skills. Because I think we, we all know that two leaders of the same organization, co-leaders or co-EDs, for example, one can be an American and one can be an African. They're presenting on the same m and &E framework, they're presenting on the same model, and one person walks away being more successful in fundraising, and I think we know who it is, uh, and it's no, not- Tell me, I have no idea. <laughs> when the American co-founder, the American co-ED walks away with more money, I think we can agree it's not because of the lack of skills, it's because of bias on the funding side. Um, and so, and, and, and that's, again, it's not to say that that benefit of the doubt isn't healthy. I think we just want to see that benefit of the doubt doled out more equitably. <laughs> and with that, let's start the virtual tour. Mm -hmm. So tell me about Nonprofit A, who sees Siegel through a newsletter or through another partner who's been funded by Siegel, who's never heard of Siegel, but then someone said, you should check out Siegel. How do they go from checking out Siegel to contacting Siegel to getting into Siegel's network and then possibly becoming a partner with Siegel? For sure. I should start with a caveat that I am not on the grant making team. So generally, I'm not the right person to approach, although I do welcome all forms of conversation. We'll get to um, that mistaken identity <laughs> at some point. Right. Um, but uh, what I would advise to people is to start by reaching out personally to somebody who is in our network, who is in our community, who is already um, partnered with us. And I think that's important for two reasons. First of all, because obviously a personal introduction to our grant making team is the most effective way to, to get into the pipeline to, um, to really uh, get that good introduction, but also to take the opportunity to honestly ask that partner how we do as funders and to evaluate our, our fit and our performance because I really always want to encourage organizations to understand that we view this as a partnership and it is as much about them deciding if we're a fit for them as it is about our team deciding if, if they're a fit for us. Um, so that personal introduction thing I think is valuable in a, in a 360 degree sense. And, and also because uh, Siegel's grant making process is led by in-country teams. So there's a Kenyan team in Kenya who are making decisions about all of our new Kenyan partners and, and grants. Um, and that applies to the six countries that we really focus on. So you will, it'll be a much slower process to come through someone like me to, to make the recommendation back over to my colleagues in Kenya. And so reaching out to our team where you are is the best way to kind of move forward. 
And how do people find that information? Is that on your website? Is that something, again, that they need to talk to partners to find? or? Mm -hmm. So the, our contact info is on our website. And so admittedly, I think we are as guilty as other funders of being terrible with our emails. Usually you have personal experience with that terrible <laughs> email. Um, but um, you can always reach out to us via our website. But also, um, we have a pretty strong community presence in terms of having events. Uh, we like to cultivate a lot of in-person time for us with our partners, but also for our partners to spend time with each other because they deliver the greatest value to each other. Uh, so, so if you kind of hear of an event or you know of someone who, who is in our community, then uh, I think reaching out to them is also another way to do that. Before I have you talk further about your tour, can you just give listeners a, a clear sort of delineation between a family foundation and uh, the more structured corporate foundation or a less structured individual, uh, either doing individual philanthropy or having just a one-person foundation? For sure. So speaking very specifically about our family foundation, because they can be different, um, this is a foundation that grew out of the aspirations of the Siegel family from New Jersey to ensure that um, they were responsibly contributing their wealth to projects that they really believed in that were delivering social impact, and it grew out of a personal interest in the region based on visits that they had made. In terms of process and what ends up really differentiating the family foundation from a larger foundation or from an individual donor is that we're kind of in the middle in this in this Goldilocks story. Um, larger foundations have um, maybe have really specific systems and policies that help them guide strategy across you know a huge portfolio across many international offices and staff and so there can be some rigidity there and, and it can sometimes be slower to move through that type of necessary but sometimes burdensome bureaucracy. Uh, for an individual donor, it's complete flexibility, right? It's this person saying, what do I believe in? Whose cause gets me excited? And, and you know, I will support that cause in any way I see fit. And the Family Foundation is kind of in the middle. Um, it's not too hot, not too cold when it comes to those processes, where um, we certainly do have systems and guiding principles that allow our team of nearly 20 to share a vision on, on who we would like to support and how. But we kind of have the luxury of having a little bit more agility, a little bit more flexibility than a much larger foundation. Every Goldilocks is going to be heading your way after <laughs> hearing this. So take it, going back to the tour, what do people need to know when they're actually in that pipeline? Because a pipeline can be anything from just you knowing about them and maybe talking to you next year to, okay, we know about you and maybe we can make something happen and the relationship is already starting to matriculate. Mm -hmm. What are some things they need to know about what to do, what not to do in order to make sure that it actually turns into a, a partnership? Mm -hmm. So I think the first thing that I tell many leaders of organizations, and this is very true in our process, but I think it can be useful in processes with other um, funders as well, is to focus more on delivering a very clear and a very honest picture of where you are. And that may, necess may not necessarily be where you want to be. Right? There's, there's where you are and there's your aspirational self. Um, I have that personally, but also your organization has that, right? And um, it's much more important to us that we understand where you are and the good and the bad of it, right? What's, what's been going extremely well, what successes are you super proud of, but also what are you struggling with? Uh, I think, first of all, that, that starts the conversation 
in a candid place and allows for both you and the funder to really ask the right questions about what support you need, what support you don't need, um, and uh, really kind of relay the reality of, of your work to a funder. And, and I think the, the part where this becomes very important is, uh, I think, not trying to bend yourself into what you think the funder is looking for. Um, because A, that, that kind of thing is not sustainable for your work, and it doesn't make the funder feel great either. I think the more important, the more important thing is to ensure that your work is led by you, by the communities that you are accountable to. At the end of the day, the funder is not accountable to them. You and your team are. And so trying to bend your strategy for the desires of a funder ends up not working for anybody. Um, so being able to confidently relay you know, why you believe in what you believe in in terms of your strategy, while still, of course, being open to feedback, um, but, but really resisting that impulse to try to, to fit into what you think they might be looking for. My final question on the tour would be, how does the finish line look? I don't necessarily mean how much money you give a grantee, but is that all you give? Is it just a grant? Mm -hmm. Is it a grant and a pat on the head and say, okay, go forth? Or is it on their other resources? Is it a long-term relationship? Is it a partnership that lasts for one year, multi-year? Can you just describe what that looks like for the people who are sort of looking to see what happens if I actually get that partnership with Seagull? For sure. Uh, of course, what ends up happening really depends on the organization. Of course. But as a policy, uh, Seagull Family Foundation only disperses unrestricted grants to organizations. We, we really firmly believe that I can hear all the clapping from the <laughs> listeners right now. I actually can really hear it. Um, we really firmly believe that access to that type of funding is really important, particularly for early stage organizations, which we try to focus on, where you need to make investments in your organization, you need to make investments in your team, and you should be able to do that pretty unapologetically, I think. And um, so that forms the core of our grant making. Uh, we. Uh, we consider on an annual basis renewal of those grants for a time horizon um, that can be in, a, be in a range of anywhere from you know five to ten years, depending on the stage of maturity of your organization. And um, we really view uh, the off-ramp of grants not necessarily as a penalty, or it's not a punitive step, but rather that we want to, to pass that organization to other funders that are really interested in supporting very mature organizations so we can find other great early stage ones. Um, on top of the unrestricted grant, uh, Siegel has what we call an active partnership model, where in addition to the grant itself, we try to provide stipends, memberships, um, access to other forms of professional support that might be useful to the organization. And I think the key here for us, or the sweet spot, is supportive but not um, you know, oppressive. <laughs> we don't want it to be... The Goldilocks theme again, trying okay. to be right there in the middle. So. Looking for the right forage constantly. Um, but So that can mean stipends for conferences, uh, access to extra funds to build out financial systems or M&E systems because while we definitely think that unrestricted funding is very important, it can end up being a little bit of a double-edged sword sometimes for organizations that really uh, struggle with sequestering funds for 
important investments. It's hard to say, I'm going to set aside $5,000 for M&E when you're just trying to keep your programs running and your lights on and, and your team paid. So we want to make sure that there's um, a combination of those types of support. Thinking about other donors who might be listening as well, or just donors that who you know in general who are maybe a little bit more rigid in terms of unrestricted support. I know when I talk to donors who are, they say, well, look at organizations like Siegel Family. They can give you the unrestricted funding and we can give you the programmatic funding. What kind of conversations do you have with other donors who are, maybe they're not so rigid. Maybe they say, okay, we get a certain part, maybe 15%, which is that magic number, uh, or they give none. Do you have those conversations? If you do, what do you say in terms of trying to explain to them why unrestricted funding is necessary? Well, as you said, it could be a double-edged sword, but giving them the opportunity to decide whether that's a double-edged sword for themselves. Right. I mean, I think it certainly requires a variety of funding, a variety of contributions and resources to make something work well. And I can understand why certain funders have you know, their specific lane or their specific area that they like to um, collaborate with organizations on. Um, and that being said, I think that the question that we always have to ask ourselves as funders is, when we're thinking about the types of resources or funding that we think is most useful or most important, how much of that opinion is being informed by feedback from organizations? And so I think there are instances, for example, when an organization could really use some strict project-based funding. There are times when an organization is really short on unrestricted funds and they need stuff for their operational budget. And, and I think rather than presuming that that need is going to be the same across the board all the time, um, we do it, it really is our responsibility to communicate with organizations about when different forms of support are right for them. Well, thank you very much for that. You've done the tour. You've survived the tour. So thank you very much. Uh, we actually started on this section already, but I'll have you just go a bit further. Mistaken identity. So when a, don a non-profit comes to you and mistakes you for either another donor or actually the person who's in charge of the grant making, mm -hmm. what do you say and what do you do? How do you navigate them to the right place? Or, you know, you're in Central Africa and Eastern Africa and some people will say, Cote d'Ivoire is not that far. You're like, actually, no, it is quite west. But, <laughs> you know, you, you do have those areas where people are working in the space that you're just not there. Uh, how do you sort of navigate them to the right place or at least navigate them away from you at that mm -hmm. place, at that moment? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the first thing is uh, to just relay my, my genuine feelings about it, which are that if I don't feel that I'm in a position to provide you with something that you need or want, I don't want to waste your time. And so out of an abundance of respect for people who are already pulled in a million directions, trying to keep their organizations running, trying to find funders that are a good fit for them, I try to communicate as clearly as I can with them where we focus, who we generally seek to fund, and, and to make sure that I'm being respectful of their time. <laughs> so that's Which I'm of... sure they obviously appreciate, but still feel like, oh, is this an opportunity missed? And I, right. always, I always forget to ask that. I feel like, how do you let somebody walk away from you not feeling like it's an opportunity missed when it really is not an opportunity missed because you can't fund them? Sure, sure. I mean, I think the other thing to remember is that um, funders and, and, you know, I think funders is just one category of people that can provide support to organizations. Absolutely. Money and, and grants are one way that they can work with you, but there are many others as well. And, and something that I do say to people is that, you know, I do want to be clear that, for example, I don't think Siegel Family Foundation will give a grant to your type of organization or model, but 
Um, something that's great about the role that I get to play is I spend all of my time talking to other funders, learning about what they're looking to support and, and what tastes they have and who they get excited about. And so even if Siegel Family Foundation isn't looking to give you a grant, I may still be interested in learning a little bit more about what you do. So that way, if I meet someone who's a good match for you, I can send them along and, and connect you all. So um, I think I think remembering that a yes or no on a grant isn't the end of a relationship is, is something I try to tell our partners all the time that even if someone can't give a grant to you, you don't, you know, suddenly that day just decide to stop emailing them. Uh, you always want to leave that partnership on a positive note and to say, you know, thank you for considering me or for letting me know about that. But um, do you have recommendations for other people that I might talk to? Or do you have advice for, for how I might approach this in the future? And the worst that can happen is they say no or they don't answer you. But the positive outcome could be that somebody gives you some really useful connections or advice. I, I What I say to nonprofits is, and we, I talk a lot about this with my former grantees as well as uh, nonprofits who I meet, the difference between pitching and representing and knowing how to transition from pitching to representing. And these are the moments when I think it's really important when you've recognized that someone may not be the right fit. Mm -hmm. How do you talk organically about the work you're doing so it doesn't feel like only this person can support you? Um, and it feels more like, okay, let me give you the things that you can now take on to a person who might be able to either fund us, but not just, as you said, not just fund, rep, you know, bring in resources in other ways. Mm -hmm. And by you doing that, you're already a resource. So yeah, I, I understand completely. And I think that it's just getting nonprofits to understand that piece about how do I transition out of the pitch mode to the representation mode? And I'll represent my organization in a way that really does move it forward, even if it's not directly through the person in front of me. Absolutely. I think something I try to tell people all the time is my best pitching advice is to stop pitching so much. <laughs> <laughs> well, what are some do's and don'ts that you have for either people coming to you looking for that, uh, mm -hmm. that funding, whether it's you directly, or it might be someone like Dado or someone else who's more directly linked to the ground in, in the grant making process. What are some of the do's and don'ts that people should know in terms of engagement? And that can be institutional to you or can be mm -hmm. just sort of as a general, not in the donor space. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the first do's is do figure out if this is the right time to connect with a person about your work. Um, you could have caught them in the middle of making a phone call about their childcare. They could be <laughs> on the way to yes. a meeting. Uh, and in those, in those moments, uh, you're probably not going to have a successful or productive interaction anyways. So always making sure to say, what's the best way for me to connect with you? Is it now? Can we meet for a coffee another time? Is, is an email the best way? And, and I think, first of all, people just appreciate that kind of personal consideration. Uh, and it just means that you are setting the stage to have a really much more productive conversation with them. And, and you don't have to utilize the, the 20 second interaction in a hallway to, to throw your entire pitch in the air and, and hope it will, will land well. And it, it eases some pressure on you as well. Uh, so that's definitely a do. Uh, a 
don't that I that I see happening a lot is uh, in an effort to relay all of the amazing things that someone's organization does, they can feel the pressure to go through a list of all of their activities and all of their program elements as quickly as they can. And it looks exhausting to watch a person do this. It also look, <laughs> feels exhausting to hear it. <laughs> yeah. And and people tend to, to shut off after a while. And one example I've used um, with, with some friends or with some colleagues is, you know, if, if you were trying to offer me a, a refreshing beverage, you wouldn't list the ingredients on the back of a bottle. You would just say, this will quench your thirst and it's delicious. And it's kind of the same with, with programs. You can go through the, the 35 very important and impressive things that you do, um, but it's not necessarily going to be describing the value of the work. Absolutely. And, I, you know, I have hosted and do host and will be hosting pitch clinics. And this is something I say when nonprofits come and say, we do seven great and meet, you know, wonderful things. Mm-hmm. What do I list the first three or do I list, you know, how do I rank them? Especially if the top two are pretty much equal. And I say, don't list them. Mm-hmm. Tell me what they all do together. What's the impact of all of them together? Right. And it's very much like you said, I think it was a wonderful uh, analogy that you put there of the, uh, the drink. <laughs> I actually don't want to know what's in any of the things I drink. Right. I Probably just, not. <laughs> yeah, ignorance is bliss. Right. right. What's some experiences that you'd like to share, either good or bad, in terms mm-hmm. of engaging with nonprofits, whether it's you directly or just organizationally that you've heard? I mean, I think one of them is, is an extension of that experience of... Um, someone feeling so pressured to pitch to you that uh, you're not actually having a conversation. And and I may be very interested in your work or someone on our team may be very interested in your work and it's it's your passion. Um, But if we can't have a back and forth conversation or I don't have the opportunity to ask questions or to let you know which elements we're most interested in. It it puts a lot of pressure on you to just keep talking. Um, But it also makes it feel like uh, we may not be able to get to the information that we're most interested in. And so I I really urge people to ensure that uh, these are truly conversations. And that's, again, why I say stop pitching so much, because you should be having a conversation. This is an opportunity to establish whether or not you want someone to work in partnership with you on what might be one of the most important things in your life. So conversation is necessary. And um, yeah, and then I'm trying to think of you want more bad, what, <laughs> what, more what, don'ts. What does a, a bad um, interaction look like? I mean, I think I've seen bad interactions um, or, or, or difficult behavior on the side of funders, which I've also Absolutely. Um, witnessed. And I think uh, it genuinely does often come from a desire to uh, approach things in, in a methodical way, to be responsible, uh, to do things uh, in, in a way that uh, centers impact and that centers outcomes for communities. But I think, uh, you know, kind of the, the flip side of this breathless questioning or, or delivering of any kind of information is um, funders can get into a very interrogative mode, which frankly can come across as aggressive and, and insulting to, to organizations um, when, again, it should be more of a conversation. And so subjecting someone to a 25-point checklist on whether or not they fit with our funding requirements is maybe an approach that, that, that people need to rethink and to, and to reframe it as a conversation. 
one thing I just want to add there is mm-hmm. I, I've talked to nonprofits where they've had the conversation with the donor and it mm-hmm. went wonderfully. Mm-hmm. And then they said, we invite you to apply, you know, and here's the application. And the mm-hmm. application looks like they're, <laughs> they're applying for 15 loans. They have right. no idea and they, they feel like there's not enough sort of mentorship from the donor to say, mm-hmm. this process could be daunting, but let us walk you through where you need to walk through. They sort of say, right. here it is and get it to us by this date. And if you miss that date, then mm-hmm. too too bad. So I, I agree with you there that there needs to be something that happens in between mm-hmm. this wonderful, warm conversation that we have and mm-hmm. inviting you to a process. And that grant application mm-hmm. may have to be that complicated for many reasons, mm-hmm. but have someone there to walk them through that or explain to them why it's so complicated and why for it's sure. so uh, technical. Mm-hmm. And it's the question and answer part, but not from me. You've already got loads of questions coming from me. This is coming from, well, non-profits. Uh-huh. So there'll be two questions only, not too many. One from my book, so mm-hmm. a non-profit question from the book, as well as someone who's familiar with the Siegel Family Foundation. Mm-hmm. And of course, I choose a very long question. I hate reading, and I always <laughs> feel like I just get jumbled and sound like Charlie Brown's teacher, but I'll do my best to get through this one. My organization reached out to a prospective donor for funding. After a few correspondence, the donor notified us that the grant request was declined, but encouraged us to reach out in about a year or so to see if there was a chance for future partnership. This was a promising response that we took at face value. In that year, we also felt that enough had changed and grown within our organization to merit reaching out. We sent an email to see if anything had changed on their end to justify reapplying for the grant. The donor strongly lashed out. We were accused of harassment and badgering the donor into support, which was not the case at all. We didn't send our usual updates so that we respected the request uh, to wait for a year. My first question is, how should we have responded to that response? And short of reading minds, is there a way to avoid situations like that ever occurring again? Oof. Yeah, I know. I mean, yeah, I mean, first of all, I just, I feel terrible that that experience happened to that organization. Um, and I mean, it sounds like the, as, as it's being relayed that they did all the things that the funder asked and was respectful of their boundaries. So um, I don't know what, what they could have done differently in that instance, but it does sound like, and, and, and it's hard to know where it happened, it does sound like an instance of miscommunication. And I think uh, when when somebody lashes out at you strongly, and, and I think this is true from, from either side, the best you can do is to say, I'm so sorry that clearly... Um, there must have been some kind of misunderstanding. We obviously respect, respect your process. We, you know, have respect or respected you as a collaborative thought partner in this process. And the last thing we would be, want to do is to um, disrespect feedback or choices that you communicated to us, um, and 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 hopefully leave things in a more positive place. Um, and, but however, at the same time, I, I feel that there should be more accountability when, when funders fail to clearly communicate to organizations because um, obviously they're also putting in a lot of time and resources into this interaction and, and um, you know, nobody, nobody wants to be wasting their time or to, to be misunderstood. Uh, but yeah, that, that, doesn't sound, that doesn't sound great. <laughs> I'm actually going to add my own answer to that because when I heard the question, uh, when I heard, when I read the question, received the question, sent out, I felt like I wanted to have an answer for that as well, but I put it up for the donors. So just in, in you speaking, I think you hit upon one of it, like obviously apologizing 
and not going just completely right and going, damn you, you told me to do that. Right. You know, really sort of holding back. But also what I would say for the second part of that question, which was how do you have that from not occurring again? Mm-hmm. I would always suggest that if someone has encouraged you to do something, especially via email, mm-hmm. that you copy, you don't sort of fresh email, but you actually, right. they, so they can actually reference because I'm mm-hmm. thinking in situations, people just don't, especially, it's been a year mm-hmm. and they can be confusing with somebody else who has been badgering sure. them. So just keep those conversations flowing. I love the looking at those threads because some, so many things change and Absolutely. I, I like to have that sort of history myself. So I sort of know, okay, where do we meet again? That happens. I do tell people, reach up to me in six months or a year Mm -hmm. or even three months. But even in three months, I've gotten about a million emails in that span. And and if it's a fresh email, I'm now doing a search, putting your name in my little search box and waiting for the results to fill. So Mm -hmm. just having that chat history and their reply, not just going with a fresh email might be something they can do. For sure. Human brains are fallible. So receipts are necessary. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Question two. Siegel Family Foundation is known as being progressive on many levels, including the advocacy it does on behalf of its grantees. Do you ever wonder about how that advocacy could hurt the space for early stage nonprofits who don't have the seal of approval from a donor like Siegel, but are doing equally important work? If so, how do you safeguard against that? That's a good question, and it's certainly not what we would want to be the outcome of that. Um, but I wonder if, if framing it as a bit of a zero-sum space might might not be how things play out in in reality uh, and, I, and I think a way that we try to be mindful of this is not by saying we are specifically only advocating for organizations that we work with but rather to um, speak in general terms about the importance of supporting early stage ideas the importance of supporting historically underrepresented forms of leadership uh, and and we really believe in that not just within our partner community but beyond and and the way that we we hope to to not you know to simply be waiting that effect within our our circles is by actively talking to other funders about what they can what they're doing to apply that approach to their funding circles and to their communities that extend far beyond ours and so However, I, I think if, if people see that manifesting or if they see there being an unintended negative consequence of how we approach this work, that's feedback we really want to hear. And those are conversations um, I am definitely the right person for people to seek out to have. So, um, so I certainly the door is always open and I would love to know how we can do this work better. Is that feedback that you've heard before? Is, uh, I mean, I can't imagine that that's yeah. something that you normally get. So even when I got the question, it was quite interesting. Yeah. But I just wonder if that's more of a competitive spirit that people feel or mm-hmm. if that's something that they've perceived upon or maybe that's something they feel like it's an experience. Yeah, that's a unique question. But I think maybe it it resonates with, with other feedback or questions or conversations I've had where um, I, I think every funder faces the moment where they want to fund beyond where they're restricted to funding, whether it's geographic or the type of model uh, or the sector. Uh, I think everybody obviously um, sees so much more value outside of what they can work on personally. And and that's, you know, we're no exception. <laughs> so um, I think I, I really try to stress to people that uh, our, sometimes our inability to work with them is truly just a reflection of our inability and not theirs and not because we don't approve of their type of work or where they work um, but but it's always good to be pushed to to expand farther <laughs> yeah, yeah so I'm going to end this with the future 
what is something you would like your philanthropy to eradicate or cure in your lifetime? Oof, wow. I have a hard time with the concept of cures um, or eradication because I feel like particularly in the equity space, I think injustice, inequity is a, is a bit of a gravitational force, right? That we have to keep beating our wings against. And there's never really much of a finish line. Um, we just have to keep doing the work, right? Uh, but I think something I would love to see in five years or, or in our lifetimes is uh, an approach to resourcing great impact work that truly positions itself as partnership and not as um, this power dynamic of organizations doing the work, having to seek funds from, from funders in a way that um, you know positions them at the wrong end of a power dynamic. And I think that requires changing mindsets on, and processes on both sides and really asking as funders, um, what what is required to make us more accountable to organizations to really prove that our methodologies are data informed in the same way that we that we throw those expectations onto organizations? Um, what rationale do we have for our impact models? And and I think uh, having more of those conversations among funders, having organizations engage in those conversations and contribute their feedback is is something that I'm really excited to do more of. Thank you so much. Thank you for your wisdom and <laughs> bearing with all the craziness that's been around while we've done this. So, no yeah, and thank you for listening. This is Virtual Philanthropy.